I want to talk about revival for a second. Okay? Remember revival when you found out what team you were on? Wasn't that like the most exciting feeling? Unless, of course, you found out you were on team Krispy Kreme because that was rough. Am I right? Like, I thought Team Krispy Kreme was going to, like, dominate. I think for a while, weren't they winning? Weren't you guys winning for, like, part of the week? You know who made, like, a subtle comeback this year was uh, Team Starbucks. They, they were close. I don't know how close you know that they, they were extremely close. Chick-fil-A, like, low-key, wait a minute. This, we've got a trader. Look at this trader. This man was on Team Taco Bell. He's wearing a Chick-fil-A jersey tonight. Team Taco Bell's not happy with you right now. That was bad. Yeah, that's bad. I guess that's why he got all of his chips stolen tonight, because he was wearing the wrong jersey. But hey, there's something to that idea of like when you find out what team you're on, it gets you all excited. Because those of you that were on Team Chick-fil-A, you were super excited to represent Chick-fil-A with that cool shirt. Taco Bell people, you were ready to make all the, uh, uh, let's just call it stomach problem jokes, you know, that you were going to make. Starbucks, you basically had that one joke that just kept repeating the fact that you were giving people coffee. And you also played the like, you're going to have stomach problems and go to the bathroom a lot. Like, I don't know why you played that. But like when you found out what team you were on, it really started to establish like who you were going to be, right? You started to make some decisions, how you're going to dress, what color you were going to wear, obviously. But even more than that, it, it got you to start thinking, okay, what is the goal this week? Who am I going to be? And if you're on Team Taco Bell, you had an interesting week. If you're on Team Chick-fil-A, you ended up winning. But the whole point was, even at the beginning, once you found out who you were going to be, it changed everything about what you started to do later on. And that question of like, okay, who am I? What am I supposed to do? Is a question that everybody asks. And maybe you've even asked it yourself about like, what am I? What am I supposed to do? A lot of people talk about their identity. And they say, it's really important for me to find my identity. A lot of teenagers go through their teenage years trying to find their identity. Well, I want to tell you that God is actually going to give us in our text today what our identity is. And the question that we're going to ask tonight, because remember, every time we look at the Psalms, there's always a question. Even the title of all these sermons will be questions. So what is the question that the psalmist, that David asks, and what's the answer we're going to get? That's what we're going to look at. And here's the question. What is mankind. What are we? That, I know that sounds like such a simple, like you would tell a third grader what you are, but it's really, really important for you to figure out who you are and what you're supposed to do will change everything about who you are. And if you have any confusion on that, it's really going to keep you from doing what God wants you to do. So once you grab your Bibles and look at Psalm chapter eight, speaking of revival, remember revival, we memorized this passage. Some of you are going to know this. You're going to look at this and say, oh wow, I remember memorizing these verses. Well, Psalm 8, it's a section that we memorized at Revival this last summer. But as we read this, I think we're going to get a better understanding of what David's saying here and the question that he asks. Because there's a really important question. What are we? Because if you don't understand what you are and who you are before God, you're probably not going to live in a way that is going to be the way you were intended to live. Now, that sounds really simple, but we're going to talk about that for this sermon. What does it mean to be humans? What does it mean that God made us? Because that's the first thing that we find out here. First word here, first couple words here. David says, O Lord, our Lord, which sounds like he's saying one word repeated, but that's actually two different words. He's saying God, Yahweh, God's personal name, Lord, our Lord, which is a different word, Adonai, Yahweh and Adonai. He's saying, O God, speaking to God, his personal name, you are my God. You're my Lord. So he's talking to God. Just like all these Psalms that we're going to look at, there's a lot of talking to God involved. That's what this Psalm is. He says, how majestic is your name in all the earth, right? Majestic, ma majesty. Like that's, I don't know, that's words we don't use very often. But when you hear those, there's a picture that you should come, that should come to your mind. The picture of a king, the picture of a queen. There's some royalness to that word majestic. Okay, and I think that's what he's trying to say. David's trying to talk to God and say, God, you are like a king. You're royal. You're, you're majestic. That means powerful, strong, but also at the same time, like glorious and amazing and, and beautiful all at the same time. How can you be strong and important and powerful and beautiful all at the same time? Well, that's what he's saying God's like. 
He's strong, powerful, beautiful, all at the same time. How majestic is your name in all the earth? Basically, he's saying the whole earth should know that God, you are amazing. So that seems obvious. He's praising God here. But next thing he says, middle of verse one, he says, you have set your glory above the heavens. Sometimes when you see the word heaven, it sounds like we're just talking about the place where God lives. But if you think about it, remember Genesis 1.1, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What is he trying to describe there? The heavens and the earth, the sky and the, and the land. So when you see the word heavens, one of the things you need to remember is sometimes he's just talking about the sky. So God has set his glory above the heavens. What does that mean? I think what it means is even in the sky, when we look at the sky, we see something of God's power and God's strength. Even above the heavens, we see that. It says in verse two, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now that's probably the most confusing verse in the whole passage. I don't know if you remember memorizing that this summer and thinking, what on earth does that mean? How does God establish strength out of the mouth of babies, right? You might've heard Eden crying earlier. Like the only thing that's coming out of the mouth of babies is throw up and screaming, okay? That's about it. It's just like out of the mouth of baby. What is he talking about? Well, I think what he's saying is that God's power and strength is confirmed even by babies and children and little children. And I think what it's saying here, it says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. Even babies and infants show something of God's glory and out of their mouth comes something that proves that God is stronger than who? To still the enemy and the avenger. So when you look at the world and you see all these people that don't like God, and that's how David felt. There's a lot of people who are, who are David's enemy. There's a lot of people that are, feel like they're our enemy because they don't like God. Well, even out of the mouth of infants and babies, God has shown his power over and against the people that are against God, his enemies. It's a hard concept to think about. And the Bible actually talks about this a lot. Jesus even quotes this passage once in the New Testament. We'll talk about that later. But the point is, God shows that he's the king. Even the babies recognize that God is the king. The enemies, they don't really recognize that. But even the, the babies and infants recognize that. Verse number three. David asks a question here in verse four. But before that, he sets it up by saying, I was camping one night and I looked outside. That's really what he's saying in verse number three. He says, when I look at your heavens, which remember, what are heavens? Is he looking past the sky to like where God's sitting? That's not what he's talking about. Remember, heavens means sky. So what David's saying is, when I look at the sky, the work of your fingers, remember, who is he talking to? He's talking to God. So David says, God, you have made the skies, and he says, the moon and the stars, which you set in place. That's why I said this is probably nighttime. But if he went outside and looked at the sky during the day, what would he see? He'd see the sun and the clouds. But he's saying, I went outside and I looked up and I saw the moon and the stars that you have put into place. So what are we even recognizing about God right here? That God is the one who designed the world, who set everything in motion the way that it is. Right? Nothing came about accidentally. The world did not come about over millions and billions of years, over the course of time by random chance, that's not how the world got here. It doesn't matter what people at school say. That's wrong. It did not get there that way. It got there when God said it's gonna be there. It got there, as you read in the book of Genesis, when God said, let there be light, there was light. When God said, let's, let's separate the sky and the, and the dry ground, that's what happened. When God wanted it to happen, he set it up exactly the way he did it, and he did it instantly. He didn't do it over a long period of time. So what does David recognize? He says, the skies, the stars, the moon, it's amazing. But when I look at it and I go outside and I see the stars and I see how many there are and I see the moon, which sometimes is so bright, sometimes it's really dim. When I see all of it, there's one question that comes to my mind. What am I? Because I see this huge thing that's out there. I see nature and it's amazing and it's powerful. But then I ask the question from God, what am I? I am tiny, right? Have you ever realized how small you are? Have you ever had that feeling? 
Like maybe when you see a video where they compare the size of stars. I don't know if you've ever seen those videos, but like there's the, the earth and then the sun is like so much bigger. And then all these other stars are so much bigger and just gets bigger and bigger. And then you remember, I'm tiny. Or maybe when you think about how many people live on this planet, something like 7.4 billion or something like that right now, 7.4 billion people, right? You can't even count to that number. Or you can't even imagine. Like if I said, hey, draw what it looks like to have 7.4 billion people in a room. You'd be like, I, what? Like I can't even... I can't even do that. How many people can even fit in a room? Like, what's the biggest, uh, you know, stadium? Like, the biggest stadium only holds, like, 100,000 or 200,000 people. What is 7.4 billion? I can't even fathom that. Not to mention all the people that are being born, all the people that are dying, all the people that are going through hard things. I can't even understand all my own problems, let alone all the people in this room, let alone all the hairs on our head. God knows a lot. That's the point. And I feel really small. And you should feel small. I should feel small. When I look at the stars and when I go outside and you go outside tonight, right? And it's a little colder than you think. David's saying, look up. Think about how big the universe is. And think that the God who made it is even bigger. And it should make you ask the question, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is the son of man? What, what am I that God even cares about me? I'm tiny. I mean, compared to the world, Compared to the universe, compared to all the galaxies, I'm tiny. Why would God ever care about me? That's the question. Verse number five, look what David says. He says, yet you have made him, mankind, right? A little lower than the heavenly beings. You see the word heavenly beings? There should be a number by that. If you have a, one, a Bible that looks like mine, follow the footnote. What does it say? It says, or then, what's the term there? Can you find it? A little lower than the heavenly beings. Can you see what it says there? You see it in your Bible? Anybody see it? What does it say? Or then God, right? The word Elohim is the word that which means God. It's a Hebrew word which means God. Sometimes it's translated heavenly beings. The reason I think they do that is because in Hebrews chapter 2, there's a passage where the author of Hebrews looks at and quotes this passage and says the word angels, because one of the translations, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that the author of Hebrews used says the word angel. So I think that's why we say heavenly beings. But I think what he might have meant here was God. He basically says, you have made us human beings, even though we're tiny, you've made us a little lower than God himself. You've made us just below you, even though we're tiny, even though compared to all the stretch of history, we have a tiny little life. God is infinite, but we're tiny, but God has made us so special, right? I asked the question, what are we? Well, this is very important. You have made us a little lower than the heavenly beings, than the angels, than God himself. And look what it says in the middle of verse five. Check it out in your Bibles. It says, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Okay, I said that word majesty at the beginning sounds like a king word, right? Like describing God as like a king, powerful, strong, glorious, okay? Those words, glory and honor, those are also king words. What is he saying? David's saying, when I look at God and I look at how amazing his world is, I feel really small, but then I remember that God has made us just a little lower than him and he's given us glory and honor, glory and honor, right? That means he's given us dignity, he's given us strength, he's given us beauty, he's given us intelligence, right? So that's why when you look at somebody, right, some of you, right, you, you look at your crush and you say, wow, they're, uh, they're really good looking, right? That's what you think, right? Like, wow, they're good looking, okay? Is that wrong? Well, maybe, but um, it might be true, right? God has made you with some glory, even if you think, well, nobody looks at me, and thinks of me that way, or they don't think I'm good looking. Well, here's the thing. This text says God has made you and given you glory and honor, right? Whether you're the, the prettiest person in the room or the ugliest person in the room, it doesn't matter. God has given you glory and honor, right? You are valuable because God has made you valuable, okay? That's one of the things, like what, are, what, what is man? Well, God says that he has given us glory and honor. I just want you to think about, it. it's like it's the king giving you his royal robes, that's what it's like. That's what he's saying. You, although you don't deserve it, God gave you these amazing gifts and he's made you special, even though you feel really small. And it's true that you're small, but
but still it's also true. It feels like a paradox, right? These two things that seem contradictory, but are both true, that you are tiny in comparison to God's world, but at the same time, God has given you a very special place in his world. Then it says in verse six, not only have you given us glory and honor, royal words, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. So it's like God built something and he says, you're in charge of it now. I built it, I designed it, but now you are gonna be in charge of running it, right? I imagine there was an old video game back in the day where you would, on computers, where you would make an amusement park, okay? I don't know if you know this game. Super, I don't even know what it was called, but like you'd make an amusement park and then it would like run and then like people would like need food and then you'd have to fill up the snack station and, and people would get in line if it was a good, it's super nerdy, but I played it when I was a really young kid, and it was, it was really fun, right? But that's what I think of. It's like God made, imagine someone made an amusement park and then said, okay, now it's your job to run the machines. You didn't make it. You didn't design the world. But God has given you charge and authority to press the button, so to speak, and let the people, you know, go on the roller coaster. You didn't design it. You don't even know how it works. But still, you've, given, you've been given authority. It's not yours because you designed the place. It's yours because someone gave you the authority. Same thing with God. What he's saying here is, what are we? Well, one of the things that we are, after God gave us glory and honor, he also gave us responsibility. He gave us a job. And what is the job? To take his world and to be the rulers over his world. But not in an evil way, but in a way that would reflect what God is like. Then it says in verse seven, it says, put all things under our feet, all sheep and oxen, all beasts of the field, all birds of the heavens and the fish and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. The thing I want you to see there is it's like, what are the closest animals to humankind? Or what are the ones that we keep close? Well, back then it was like the sheep and the oxen, right? Those are the ones they're interacting with all the time. The sheep of their fold, the oxen that would like, you know, plow their field. Those were the animals they really interacted with, okay? And then on like an outside level, well, they interact with those special animals, the sheep and the oxen, but then there's the beasts of the field, right? The wild animals. Well, God's given you charge of them too. So you might feel like, oh, I'm only in charge of the sheep. Oh, well, I guess I'm in charge of the oxen, but not the beasts of the field. God says, no, even those, those are under your authority. And then further, things that they understood even less, the birds of the heavens, right? God says, no, you're in charge of those too. Those are under your authority, just like kids are under the authority of their parents. The animals are under your authority. The ones you know really well, the sheep, and also the oxen. And, you know, also those wild beasts that you don't know that much about. And also, you know, those birds that you don't know hardly anything about. And then the, the last thing, the sea creatures, the things they don't know anything about, right? The sea creatures that we haven't even discovered. What does God say in Psalm 8? That they are under your authority as a human being. That God has made you to have dominion, to have authority over them. But what if they're bigger than me? What if they're stronger than me? What if it's a giraffe, an elephant? That's the whole point. That's the amazing thing that Psalm 8 is saying. That even though you're small in comparison, God has given you special authority. And look what he says in verse 9. After saying this at the beginning, I think you have a new appreciation for this, verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic, how powerful are you, is your name in all the earth. That's amazing that you've done what you've done. So as you see all this, as we just worked our way through this passage, the main emphasis at the beginning and the end is that you would worship God. Like that's the bottom line. That's the point. But there's a lot of things in between here that tell us why we should worship God. So the first thing that I want you to write down on the top of your page is that first line that you have. I want you to write this down. Worship God because. Worship God because. Now, what are we worshiping God for? Well, this says at the beginning we should worship God because he's amazing. Then at the end it says we should worship God because he's amazing. What about all the stuff in between? Well, all the stuff in between is the points that we're going to write down tonight. The first point, the first thing we see in verses 1 and 2 especially are this. I want you to worship God because he is the mighty creator and king of the world. I want you to write that down. Point number one, worship God because God is the mighty creator and king of the world. Two things, the strong, mighty, glorious, majestic creator, the one who made it all, but not just the one who made it all and designed it all. He's also the king over it all. That's really important that you recognize that God is both those things, that he's the creator and he's the king. 
And I'm not just bringing that word in for no reason. That word king is important because that's the word majesty. That's the word Lord our Lord. It's like God is the king. He's the one in charge. And guess what? As the king, what does he do? He gives his royal power to you. That you are prince. You are princess, so to speak, in God's world. Not because you're that impressive, but because God has decided to give you that authority. That's amazing. I said verse number two is hard to understand. The whole out of the mouth of children, God's strength is established in the midst of his foes. That's kind of hard to understand. I think it makes more sense when we understand how Jesus quotes this in the New Testament. There's a time in Matthew chapter 21. It's right after Jesus comes into the city on the donkey. Remember that? Where he comes in, he rides on the donkey. It's called the triumphal entry. He comes in the city and Matthew 21, 15 says, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that Jesus did and they saw a group of people doing something. It says they saw children crying out in the temple. Hosanna to the son of David. Remember Hosanna? It means God save us. To the son of David. So the chief priests and the scribes, they see all the things that Jesus is doing and then they see kids. They might look at, they might be under 12 years old probably. That's probably what a kid is. Even younger than you. Imagine you see a group of kids that are like Sparks or TNT age. Maybe even younger. Maybe Cubbies. And imagine seeing this group of kids worshiping Jesus and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. The scribes, Pharisees, these these religious leaders, they don't like it. It says they became indignant. They became so angry because these people were worshiping Jesus. Why were they angry? Well, a couple reasons. One, they're angry because they thought, well, only God deserves that worship. But remember who Jesus is. He is God. And secondly, because they weren't getting it. Okay, So they were mad that these kids, which they look at the kids and they say they don't know anything. Those kids, they're so dumb. They don't know anything. That's why they're worshiping Jesus. They're just a bunch of fools, right? They don't even understand. They're just little kids. They don't get it. The scribes say that. And then guess what Jesus quotes to them? He says, do you hear what these are saying? Or the the, the Pharisees, sorry. They say that to Jesus. They say, do you hear what they're saying? You should rebuke them. Tell them to stop worshiping you. And Jesus quotes Psalm 8 verse 2 and says, yes, but have you ever read Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you prepared praise. Like the worship that's coming, don't you know that God promised in the Old Testament that even kids and even young kids would praise him in the midst? Remember, it doesn't quote this, but you should think of it. And I think the Pharisees did think of it. Who are the enemies and the foes? Well, Jesus is saying, don't you know the Old Testament says that out of the the mouths of even little kids, God's going to get praise, right? Well, That passage also says to silence the foes and the enemies, right? Who are those people? Well, in Matthew 21, well, they're the people that don't want Jesus to be praised. They're the Pharisees. So instead of being the good guys, they find out in that passage, they're the bad guys. So what is the point? Jesus is saying, hey, even insignificant people are going to praise God one day, right? And again, doesn't that just remind you of verse number three? I look at the stars and I I see how small I am compared to to the world, what is man that we're even cared about by God? What's the point? You might feel like you're insignificant. You might even feel like your praise of Jesus doesn't need to happen because it doesn't even do anything. You might feel like it's just a tiny little thing. I'm not that important to God. Well, Matthew 21, Jesus says, well, remember, even out of the mouth of little babies, I prepared praise. I care about that. It's, it's a lot like what Jesus said in Matthew 11. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said, he prayed to God. He said this to God. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, these important spiritual truths, that you've hidden them from the wise and the understanding, and you have revealed them to the little children, right? to people that are not that impressive. Right? Again, if you've got a pride issue, you might not resonate with this, but some of you think, I'm really insignificant. I don't know why Jesus would want me to worship him. I don't know why he'd want me to praise him. This passage says God values the praise of even insignificant people. And you know what the the passage also says is that when you, although being an insignificant person, worship God, you might not think that will do anything to the world, right? Because you think, well, if I worship Jesus, I mean, it's not like 
all the big, uh, you know, famous pop stars are just going to drop everything and, and, and become a Christian because I'm worshiping Jesus, right? That's how we're tempted to think. But what this passage says is, in the midst of God's enemies, as powerful as they are, what is going to be the thing that condemns them on the last day? The fact that you, insignificant person, person who doesn't know as much as them, person who's not as smart as them, you got it. You got it and you were worshiping God. When all the wise people, like 1 Corinthians 1 says, when they think they're so smart and they're so wise, the people who hate God, even the praise of God's seemingly insignificant people, that's going to put them to shame on the last day because you got it and they didn't. So your praise of God is not insignificant. You recognizing tonight in, in this weird room in this business park 2,000 years after Jesus walked around on this earth and 3,000 years after this was written, like, why does this matter? Well, because God cares about even insignificant, small acts of praise. God cares what you think and your way that you develop and your thinking about God. God cares about that and it matters to him. Problem is, Romans 1 says that people understand stuff about God and then they reject it and they worship other things. Romans 1 verse 20 says that God's attributes, his power, his glory is revealed to the world like in the skies and everybody understands something about God. But it says people denied it and they haven't worshiped God. But it says everyone's without excuse because God has, I mean, made it pretty clear that he exists, right? You know, some people will talk to you and say, yeah, there's no proof for God's existence, right? Some people will say that to you. It's like, well, there's a lot of proof for God's existence. You are proof of God's existence, you couldn't exist if God didn't exist. You couldn't function the way you function, right? Where does your consciousness come from? Where does love come from? Where does intelligence come from? Where does your idea that you can make volitional, actual choices, like that's God. That's not the natural world. The natural world does not make that. Life doesn't come from non-life. Like you exist because God exists. So you can deny God's existence, right? And tell God, oh, I don't think you exist. That's, that's like you saying, I don't think my parents exist, right? No, they exist, right? You have parents. You have to. It's why you're here, right? You say, well, I don't believe in the existence of parents. You'd be like, well, maybe you need to have the talk. Like, if you don't believe in the existence of parents, like, you should probably get that checked. It's like, like, they exist and yours exist too, right? Even if you don't know them, even if some of you never really met them, they still exist, right? Just the fact that you don't know them or haven't met them doesn't deny their existence. You're here. You are proof of their existence, Okay? Same thing with God. We have to admit that God exists. We have to. And the world that doesn't accept that, well, they're just not accepting it. The problem is, Romans 1 says, when people don't accept that God is the king and the creator and the boss like this says, it says, they start to worship other things. In fact, the thing that people always go after is they start worshiping creatures. They start worshiping things that are made. Right, so if you think, well, I'd never bow down to an idol or a statue of some you know, animal. Right? Okay, you might not, but you will very actively bow down, so to speak, in your heart towards people that you look up to and sports heroes that you think are amazing. You would say, oh, I couldn't even imagine meeting them. Like I, just, I would want to bow down to them. Right? I'd want to say, whoa, you're amazing. Right? Whether it's a famous person or a pop star or whatever it is. There are people, even in your mind, probably for most of you, that you would say, wow, I, you know, I would just want to like give them praise and bow down and worship them, right? You need to be careful with that because this text says that the people who won't worship God, what everyone will do is everyone will worship, right? So you could be the most hardcore atheist and Romans chapter one says, you are still gonna worship something. You're still gonna worship something. Why? Well, because God made you to worship. Now you can take that worship and direct it somewhere else, other than God, right? but the, the reality is still the same, that you will worship something. And probably you will worship someone and something that is created by God. And that's the ultimate irony, that the people who deny that God exists, they'll end up worshiping the things that God has made. Right? Make sure that's not you. Make sure you recognize that God is the mighty creator of the world. But then I want you to ask that question that David asks. He looks at the stars. He looks at how big the universe is. And he says, what on earth am I? I'm tiny in comparison to God's world. What am I? I'm just, I'm small and tiny compared to that huge universe. I'm insignificant compared to the millions and billions and billions of people that exist on this planet. I'm insignificant, right? That's a good feeling to have, right? Because some of us, our problem is, 
instead of thinking, oh, I'm insignificant and small, some of us think I'm the most important thing on this planet. I, 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 trust me, even if you have not said it that way, you probably have thought that at some point, one point or another. Right? Point number two is this. I want you to worship God because God cares for tiny human beings like us. Tiny human beings. Even the tallest person in the room, you are tiny. You are insignificant, relatively. If you really looked at the world and looked on the outside, like I've done this recently. I just started, um, I watched these videos on, on YouTube that came up for me of this game that I played in high school at the computer lab with people. And it showed up on my like recommended YouTube. It was this game called GeoGuessr. Have you ever heard of this game? You ever heard of this? GeoGuessr? Yeah, we used to play that in high school. Um, super cool. GeoGuessr. So basically what the, the game is, is you get dropped somewhere, like random Google Street View, and you have to place yourself on the map of the world. So depends on what map you play or whatever, but you could play a world map, you get dropped anywhere, some random place. And some, like you can set it up to where you can't move around. So you just kind of zoom in on the street view and like, okay, I think that looks like this language. Okay, there's like a compass there. So, okay, the sun is, is over there to, to the east. Okay, and then you like go on the Google map and you find and you drop a pin, right? And some people are really good at this. And if you can like learn the environment well enough, um, you can drop a pin like, I did it recently because I saw the video, so I, I download the app on my, my iPad. I played it last night. It sounds embarrassing to say I played a video game. It's not really a video game, but whatever. I played it. Um, if, you, if you're really good, you can get within like five yards or 10 yards. Right? There's one place. I played this map called Famous Places, and it was like right by the Statue of Liberty. So I like zoom in, zoom in, zoom in. I find the Statue of Liberty on the map because you can't search it, right? Because that would be defeating the point of the game. But then, then I drop a pin and it's right there. Right? But the point is, I, I've been all over the world in the last day. Okay? I've seen a lot of different places in the world in the last day, which is so embarrassing to say, but it's true. It's true. Um, we're trying to get Eden to go to sleep, right? And I got her in one hand, right? I'm feeding her the bottle, and then I'm kind of like swiping on this, this, this Google map thing. Sounds really nerdy. But the point is, it, it got me to see, again, like how I don't know anything. Like, I think I've been a lot of places. I've been to a few countries. I have been to like four or five countries, right? There are so many different places, and all these countries, when you zoom in, like, you know how big Brazil is? Like, Brazil is huge, right? Not to mention China. China's massive. Okay, how about Russia? They're huge. And there's all these different, like, streets and the languages. I don't know. I, it made me think, I don't know anything. I just live in this tiny little corner of a bubble. I mean, I live in Aliso Viejo, and I work in Aliso Viejo. And basically, here's what my car does back and forth, back and forth. Like I live in a tiny little bubble, right? And you probably do too, right? Not that big. You're not always a world traveler. But it's amazing once you start to think how many people there are and how big the world is. And it should make you feel small. But as you feel small, and as you think about that, there are some things that should cause us to think like, wow, God is big and God cares for us. In fact, this text is quoted, Hebrews 2 this, this passage from verse 3, 4, and 5 is quoted in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, to describe Jesus. It's interesting. The question, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? It's interesting. The author of Hebrews picks this up and says, you know, that's kind of how it was with Jesus, too. Jesus, for a while, what did he do? He took on human flesh. He lived as a relatively puny, insignificant person, so to speak. Obviously, he is super significant, but it's like for a little while, he lived like, like one of us. And the reason, Hebrews 2 says, is so that he could live and die for his people, for us. But it's amazing that even for a little while, Jesus, the God of the universe, looked small and insignificant, right? That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that he's born as a little baby and how that's amazing. Here in Psalm chapter 8, I want you to look at Psalm 104. Just flip over in your passage real quick. Psalm 104. I want you to see something here that we don't often think about, that we are so small in comparison to the whole world, in comparison to God for sure, but we're so small compared to God. Psalm 104, verse 1, says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. Then he says, You are clothed with splendor and majesty. 
covering yourself with light as a garment. You stretched out the heavens like a tent, right? You know when you set up a tent, right? And you stretch it out and you have to put the pegs in the ground, right? It's saying like the whole sky, the whole universe. It's like God just kind of took it and just stretched it out and he set it up the way it is. It says later on, look at verse number 19. It says, he made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it's night. And when all the beasts of the forest creep about, right? You know, you're the one who said like everything that you study in biology. And here's the thing we don't often appreciate, right? Is anyone taking biology right now, right? Anyone taking biology? Earth science, any of you? Earth science, yeah. Seventh graders, eighth graders, what are you doing? Chemistry or something like that? Physical? Physical science, right? You seventh graders think you're doing like biology, a, a smaller, a different version of biology. But you study cells, right? And atoms. And, and if I say the word mitochondria, right, it makes you think of something. And uh, the powerhouse of the cell. And uh, what about this? Chloroplast. Right? It's the green stuff. That's right. Right? Photosynthesis. Right? Some of you homeschoolers are like, what are we talking about here? No. They teach you this, right? You think of those, those are biology terms, right? When you study biology, here's what you need to think of, okay? God made that. God did that. Whatever we're studying in the world, it's like we're finding out what God set up. When you look at a cell or whatever and you study mitochondria, right? Here's what it should make you think. God did that. God set it up that way. Right? When you look at birds and how they fly a certain way and how you know, they fly in that V so that they, they can kind of follow the, their drag. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but like, they, they follow the, the, the wind pattern of each other and they, the first one kind of takes the majority of, of the hit and everyone kind of flies you know, in the corners. I don't know if you've ever seen this, right, with the, with the birds. Like the, the first one takes the majority of the wind resistance and then you kind of ride nice and easy in the back and then they switch out and they can go for longer. And you're like, wow, how do they come up with that? The answer is not that they're smart birds and they came up with it. The answer is that's how God made them. Like God did that. Anything that you look in the, in the world and think, that's awesome. Like that's really interesting. That's amazing that God set it up that way. You should think God did that. Okay. We're in verse number 20. Look at verse 21. It says, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from who? Seeking their food from God. So it's interesting. God is the one. Who gave them what they have? It, it's God's food. They don't think about it that way necessarily. They're not smart enough, but that's how God set it up. And when the sun rises, they steal away and they lie down in their dens, still talking about lions, right? Man goes about to his work and to his labor until evening. Then here's the, th- here's the thing that we should all think. Well, oh Lord, how manifold, how, that means how many are your works? You're always doing amazing things in the world, God. In wisdom, you've made them all. And the earth is full of your creatures. Do you see that? It's like that's the way we should view the world at all times. When we see cars, when we see planes, when we see natural things, when we see trees and forests, we should think that's God's. Right? Even you might have thought, wait a minute, not, not the, the cars and the, and the trains and the you know, freeways because man made those. Well, just remember this. Remember this. Who made man? God made man. Who gave man the ingenuity? God did. Who gave us the capabilities? God did. Who gave us the tools? God did. Who filled our world with things like oil and resources and magnetic materials? Who filled the world like perfectly made? Have you ever thought about that? That the world is just full of stuff that we can use. It's interesting that all of it like is useful for stuff. Have you ever thought about that? Right? And then we use it and we create it to, to, to do something. That's because God gave us the ingenuity and it's God who gave us the materials, right? You've never created anything out of nothing. Everything you've created, even your ideas come, you could stem them from some place. It all stems back to God. And the answer here is, wow, oh Lord, how manifold are your works? It says in verse number 25, here's the sea. Like, look at the ocean, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both great and small, there go the ships and Leviathan, right? Imagine that, that big animal sea creature, which you formed to play in it. Like the ocean is so big, you can have a massive sea creature and he can just kind of play around in it. These all look to you, verse 27, to give them food in their due season. And when you give it to them, they gather it up. And when you open your hand, 
they're filled with good things. And when you hide your face, they're dismayed, right? When people get a lot of food, right, that's God. When people don't get food, well, God withheld it, right? Whether you're talking about a sea creature, whether you're talking about a human being, God is the source of it all. It says when you hide your face, they're dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Like a lot of times we view the world wrongly and we think that stuff happens on its own, right? We sometimes think, oh, well, you know, that, that, that bird, you know, died because, you know, it didn't get food and that just happened on its own. Nothing had to happen to it. It just happened on its own. The Bible presents it like more like, no, it's God who set it up that way. And it's God who's actively involved in everything. You ever wondered when you get cut on your hand, how amazing it is that you heal the way you do? It's like, oh, if I just leave it on its own, it will heal. You know that the world doesn't work that way unless God sets it up to work that way. Every time you cut your finger, right? I cut my finger the other day, messing around with one of my knives, and then I put super glue on it. Um, Yeah, it was, my wife didn't want me to do it, but I did, right? And it's just amazing. It was was this finger right here, my left, right? It's just amazing. I cut it. And it just heals. I don't do anything. I don't put any code in like a computer, right? I don't have to do like 70 push-ups a day to make the energy to do. Like, it just happens. You ever think about that, right? I just want you to know, things don't just happen like that. God does them. That's the way we're supposed to view the world. We think of the world so, the, the term is naturalistically. We take God out of the equation. We act like he's not the one doing it all. It's like, it's God. You ever wonder, why you can drink water and somehow it goes in your system and it hydrates you and just goes throughout your body. You didn't even think about that. You didn't design it that way. It just happens. Why? Because God designed it that way. Every time you take a breath, every time your heart pumps, right? You got all these muscles in your body that you can't even move if you tried, right? You can't even move them. You can't even do anything to them. God set it up that way. In his glorious way that he set it up. It's amazing. We've got to think about the world that way. You might think, okay, well, we just talked about how amazing the world is for a minute. Well, back to Psalm 8. Psalm 8 says that not only is the world amazing, it should make us feel small. It should also make us think, wow, God has set us up in an amazing way. What is man that you're mindful of him? Well, he gave us glory and honor. He made us a little lower than himself, right? That's from verse number five. It says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Point number three, I want you to write this down. Worship God because God gives us glory and honor like him. Glory and honor like him. So there's something about you and there's something about me that's like God. And there's a term for this. We've talked about it before. We talked about it at Revival. It was the idea that we're made in the image of God. That God made us like him in some certain ways. That comes from Genesis 127. Genesis 127 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay? Which is a good reminder that how God made you is very important. Okay? God defines who you are. Okay? I want you to think about that. God defines who you are. So God made you. Okay, God made you a boy. You're a boy. Because right? that's how God made you. So you're a boy. Right? God made you a girl. You're a girl. You're a female. And that's how God made you. Okay? And no one is supposed to change that because God made you that way. So don't change it. Don't think, because you can't change it. But a lot of people try. You can't decide. God has decided for you. In the same way, you can't decide whether or not God exists because God does. And he made you. Right? In the same way that you couldn't decide where you were born. In the same way you couldn't decide what you would look like and what your parents would look like, you can't decide any of those things. God decided it for you. So that's what you are. And in the same way, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? God made you. He defines who you are. It's our job to look at the Bible and say, okay, what are we then? So God tells us what we are and that's what we are. Okay. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, first thing is there's certain characteristics that we have that are similar to God. Right? I mentioned some of these earlier, but you are like God in that you can think. Okay? You can think on a higher level and a higher plane than things like plants can think. Okay? Plants don't think, they just exist. They, just, they do what they do, right? but God sets them up that way. Animals, right? they don't think in the same ways that we think. Right? Now, they have some level 
of intelligence, but not like you do. You have the intelligence to study the intelligence of another animal, okay? They're not doing that, right? You also have emotions that other creatures don't have. Plants don't get sad, right? They can droop, right? Their leaf can wither, but they're not sad. They're not gonna write you a love poem about how sad they are, right? They just can't do that because God didn't make them that way, but he made you that way. He made you with intellect. He made you with emotion. You make choices, right? You can go here and go there. You can drink your water. You can not drink your water. Like you can do things like that, even in ways that animals don't. Animals don't make the same kind of choices that humans make. Animals make choices based on their instinctual reactions to things that they need, right? But you can choose to do something that goes against a physical desire. Think about that. You can be hungry, have something in front of you, and choose not to eat it because, I don't know, you're on a diet, right? You can do things with a higher level of capability than the rest of God's creation. Why? Because God made you that way. Because you can do that. Because God made you that way. I saw a video this week of um, someone asking someone on the street, what would you rather do? And here was the question. Would you rather save 100 puppies or one human being, right? If you had the choice, right, what would you do? There's a hundred cute little puppies and there's one human being and you can only save one of the two. What would it be, right? Think about it. What would you have said to this person, right? The cute puppies, right? A lot of people were like, Amelia, oh, the puppies, right? Some people were like, oh, I don't know. It was hard, it was hard for everyone to answer, right? But some people, they were like, oh, I'd save the puppies, Right? And actually, most people ended up saying they would save the puppies, which is interesting. But here, here's the thing I want you to see. Psalm 8 gives us the correct answer to that. Okay? If it was 1,000 puppies and one human being, if it was 10,000 puppies, if it was every puppy in existence and one human being, Psalm 8 tells us the right answer. It's the one human being as hard as that would be for you puppy lovers. I'm sorry about that. But if it was a hundred puppies or one human being, it needs to be the one human being every time, no matter what. And I know that sounds strange. What about, my, what if it was my dog, right? Versus, that was the other question, right? What if it was your dog versus a human being, right? A little, a little kid, three-year-old kid or, or your dog, who would you save, right? That's hard, right? But the answer the Bible gives us the right answer to that question. The right answer is the human being. Why? Because Psalm 8, 5 says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. That three-year-old kid has been crowned with glory and honor that God has given him even though he's a snotty-nosed kid and doesn't know his right hand from his left, okay? That sounds interesting, but like that's the truth. Even if the kid is unintelligent, even if the kid can't think straight, right? even if there's some kind of mental handicap for that person where they can't even understand everything the way that you understand it. The Bible still says they are made in God's image. They're made in God's likeness. They're given glory and honor and dignity, and we are supposed to treat them that way. The Bible actually commands us to treat them that way. And some of you, if you know your Bibles, you might think, well, Genesis 1, that's like before there's any sin, right? Is it possible that maybe when there was sin in the world and people are sinners, that they lose the image of God? Maybe they lose, the, maybe they lose it. And maybe only Christians get it back, right? That's actually been a big debate theologically over the centuries, but, but here's the answer that I want to give you, okay? Genesis 9, verse 6. I want you to write that down. Genesis 9, 6. Here's what it says. This is after the fall, okay? This is after sin has entered the world. In fact, after sin has gotten so bad that God has wiped these people out because of their sin. Genesis 9, 6, God says to Noah, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So here's the answer. Even if someone is a sinner, which again, all of us are, this text says, if someone unjustly takes the life of you or me, the Bible says, what do they deserve? What should happen to them, right? If you took the life of someone else unjustly, right? If you murdered them is the way that we say it today. If you're a murderer, this text says that God demands that your life be taken away. Okay. Why? That sounds extreme. Why are we talking about you know, the death penalty? Well, because 
This text says, for God made man in his own image. So we're made like God, and we're supposed to treat others with the dignity that God has given them. That's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? James 3, 9. It's an interesting text. It's not really talking about being made in the image of God, but James slips that in there. He says, he's talking about the tongue and how we oftentimes speak poorly to each other. James 3, 9 says, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with our same tongue, we also curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And he says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So even the way you talk to and talk about other people, it doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter who they are. You are not supposed to curse them. Why? Because they're made in God's image, made in God's likeness. Isn't that interesting? That that one single fact should change the way that we treat other people? That God made them in his image. Whether it's a super popular, famous, rich person, or whether it's a person that you don't know and is poor or whatever, or a homeless person or whatever, like the answer is still the same. God made them in his image. God made them in his image. That's a big thing. But here's the other thing. It doesn't matter how smart you are, right? Because you might be thinking, okay, well, but the problem is I don't have a lot of the traits to the same extent that other people have. Some people are popular because they're, they're, they're rich or they're athletic or they're beautiful or they're successful or they're really intelligent. And I'm not very intelligent. I'm not very smart. I'm not very successful. I'm not very beautiful. I'm not very athletic. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter. You still have God's image. You're still valuable. You still can't harm yourself. You're still not allowed. God says you can't do it. You cannot do it. You're not allowed to. You're not allowed to deprive yourself of things that you need for your health. You're not allowed to deprive yourself of food. You're not allowed to starve yourself. You're not allowed to do it. You're not allowed. You hear that? You're not allowed. Why? Well, because God made you in his image. Because even if you're not as popular, successful, or beautiful as you want to be, you still have to treat even your own body with dignity because God made it and God owns it and you're made in his image. It's different than what the world will tell you, but it's true. God made us glorious, gave us glory and honor. But then verse six says, he gave us dominion or authority. That's point number four. I want you to worship God because God gives us authority over his created world. God gave us authority over his world. So interesting thing about the image of God, two parts to this, okay? There's the, the structural or uh, the, the technical theological term is the ontological image of God, which means God made you with those attributes, Okay. Now we're moving to the functional image of God. What does it mean that you're made in the image of God? What does that mean you should do? Okay, so it's two parts. It's one, was point number three, that you're given this dignity and honor and attributes and all those things, right? So that, that makes you valuable. But further, you and I are called to image God in the world. So not only do you have the image of God, you're supposed to image God. The idea is like, if you're like a mirror, right? A mirror is good because a mirror, if I held up a mirror, it could image your image back to you, right? It would be a bad mirror if it didn't image you back to yourself, okay? We are bad image bearers. We're not worthless image bearers, but we're not doing what we should do if we are not imaging God to the world. The idea is if you're not doing what God would have you do in the world, right, you're missing out on something. You're not doing what you were intended to do, okay? Genesis 1, after it says, Man's made in God's image. It says in verse 28, this is Genesis 1, 28, God blessed them and God said, God's gonna give two main commands here, okay? Two main commands for human beings. In all times and all places, we're supposed to listen to these two commands and say we need to apply these in our own ways, okay? Here's the first command. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, okay? I know that sounds like be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. That kind of sounds like three, but really that's one big command, right? The idea is human beings after this are supposed to have kids. They're supposed to spread out. They're supposed to have their own spot. They're supposed to spread out, right? And then it says you're supposed to subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth, right? That's really command number two. Command number one is be fruitful and multiply, which means have kids and go throughout the world, right? That's what everyone was supposed to do, And again, if, um, if everyone decides not to have kids, Right? Not that everyone has to have kids, but if everyone decides not to have kids, we're in trouble. 
Have you ever thought about that? Right? How long would it take for us all to just disappear? <laughs> Wouldn't take that long. Just a few years, right? If nobody had kids, right? So it's important. So God still says we're supposed to do it if you can, right? If you're married and you can, well, then, then do it. But then it says, subdue the earth and have dominion over the earth. What does that mean? Right? That's what we talked about at Revival. Like, what does it mean to have dominion over the earth? That means for Adam and Eve to live in the garden and take responsibility over the stuff they had, right? They had to name the animals. They had to live in the garden. They had to tend to it. They had responsibility. What do you have responsibility over, right? A lot of you have a room and a closet and a desk and junk, right? You all have junk, right? Junk drawers and stuff and rooms to clean, right? You have the, so God says, have dominion over it. Just like if I said, hey guys, let's make sure we, you know, let's say we're in small groups. Let's make sure we clean up this room. What would you say? Okay, good. Let's clean it up. You have an idea of like throw the trash away, you know, get it in order, maybe stack the chairs. That's what it means to take dominion over a room. You're supposed to take dominion over the earth just like I am, right? And we do that in a lot of different ways. And a lot of that we talked about at Revival. I think we had like two whole sermons on that. So we won't get into everything. But the point is you and I, because we're made in God's image, we're supposed to do what God would have us do. I want you to imagine what would it be like to be like a um, person who just wakes up out of a coma. I know that sounds weird. You came from a foreign planet and someone gave you an iPhone. Like, and it wasn't on or anything. How long would it take you to figure out what that thing was? Take you a while because you're like, okay, there's like no buttons on this thing. Okay, there's some buttons on the side. Oh, cool, an Apple thing showed up. What's, is there, there's a screen on this. Imagine, so I heard of this guy was in a coma for 19 years. Okay, so he went into a coma, I think it was like in the 90s and he woke up in like 2018 or something. So it was a really long coma. You wouldn't have known what an iPhone was right, if you woke up in 2018. But imagine like you, you had no idea what it was and like how long would it take you to figure out what that iPhone is? It would take you a little while right? You wouldn't understand face ID. Like, you'd be like, what is that? Like, you're, I'm just used to the thumbprint. Remember when the thumbprint was the thing, right? Um, maybe some of you still have a thumbprint one. But then you get face ID, and that's cool, right? But it would take you a while to see what that, like, little piece of glass that lights up, it would take you a while to figure out what that was. And let's say you were in a coma. I know this is ridiculous, but imagine you were in a coma for 50 years, right? You wouldn't even know what a cell phone is. It would take you even longer. But once you figured it out, you'd be like, wow. So, you're saying I can like touch the screen with no buttons and it like responds to your finger? You're like, yeah, yeah. That's kind of crazy. Whoa, that's crazy. Right? We take it for granted now, but if you, if you didn't know what it was, it would be wild, right? And then imagine, so you're saying I can like pick it up and talk to somebody who's like more than a, a room away? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could talk to somebody who's like a mile away. Oh, that's crazy. You could also talk to somebody if you wanted to that's on the other side of the world. No, that's impossible, right? It would take you a while to like learn how amazing the iPhone was, right? You're saying I can, I can open it just by swiping up on a glass thing and then it reads my face and then it knows it's me and it unlocks the phone and it opens up. Like, that's crazy. You start to think about how amazing that is, right? But the thing is, you and I, we don't think about it. We just use it because we're used to it, right? But you won't appreciate that thing until you understand what it is, what it does, and why it exists the way it does. You wouldn't use it properly. It's the same thing with you. You will not live in a way that makes sense. You will not live in a way that's fulfilling unless you do it the way that God has us do it. And God has been very kind to give us his word and explain that to us. So Psalm 8 is just kind of an introduction on what it means to be made in God's image. I know that. We'll kind of hit a lot of different topics. But I want you to think, I'm starting to understand who I am but I have to go to the Bible to tell me who I am. And once I go here and it's clear that I am a creation of God made to glorify God and serve him, then that's what my life is gonna be about. And I really want you guys to think about that as we're gonna go to small groups right now. We've got a few questions we're gonna go over, but I want you to think, what does it mean for me to live the way I was designed to live? What is man that you're mindful of? Well, God had a lot to say about that in Psalm 8. But let's pray, then we'll go to small groups. God, please help us with this. I pray that we would understand better what it means to be your special creation. I pray that we would understand better what it means to be made in your image. We know it's amazing how small we are in the world, but it's also amazing how much care you've given for each and every one of us. I pray that we would treat others well because we're made in your image, that we would truly start to be kind to others. Some of us 
who are just mean and nasty to some other people. I pray that you would help us not be. And we'd keep this in mind that we're made in your image. So that means that we need to talk to each other well and treat each other well. God, we know that you care about that. So we pray that we'd live as we're designed and that you would even give us some satisfaction and some fulfillment in doing what you want us to do. So we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.